I love fairy tales. I mean, but um, <laughs> normally I only enjoy them when it's during a bedtime story in the evening, not on a daily basis. And yet, you work at Fox News. How do you square that circle? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. You know what I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's. AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Virgin Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites blanketing planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Swell fellow says me from Brad. Oh, well, thank you, Desi. I appreciate that. Finally, (laughs) finally, after how many years, you finally spoke up. Anyway, uh, yeah, welcome to the broadcast. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. I am bound and determined to take back the real fight for election integrity from the MAGA Stop the Steal loons who have no interest in such things are co-opting the idea of election integrity as part of Donald Trump's efforts to steal the election in 2020 or pretend that he didn't lose because his ego just couldn't stand being a loser. I am bound and determined to take back that fight, even as, by the way, Democrats are also shying away from that fight because they're afraid that it'll all get lumped in with the stop the steal stuff. Anything they do might be used to you know, claim that 2020 was, in fact, actually stolen. It wasn't. Well, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to let that happen. Not on my watch. We are going to continue that fight today. And to that end, I've got a great election integrity advocate standing by to join us shortly. Uh, She's never joined us before. She is working with, actually, yes, the Libertarian Party in her state. A critical battleground state, by the way, to exercise uh, their right to a real source code and security review of voting systems that are used not just in that state, but in tons of others around the country. Uh, And as thanks for her years of work, she has faced some very disturbing threats and intimidations of late. We will explain all shortly. You'll want to stick around for that. 
But some breaking news uh, <laughs> today that I want to run through first, and as usual, some terrible media coverage of it from both the loony wingnuts at Fox News, of course, but also, sadly, as usual, more disturbingly, from the non-wingnut corporate media. Uh, first up, as you may have heard, a, uh, a 50-year-old bridge collapsed in Pittsburgh early on Friday, requiring rescuers to rappel down a ravine and form a human chain to reach a few of the occupants of a bus that had plummeted along with the span. Thankfully, and perhaps incredibly, no deaths were reported. The collapse came, ironically enough, just hours before President Biden was to arrive in the city to promote his landmark bipartisan $1 trillion infrastructure bill that was passed several months ago and has earmarked about $1.6 billion for Pennsylvania bridge maintenance. At least four people required hospital treatment, five other vehicles, including that bus, which only had two passengers and a driver on board, thankfully. We're also on the bridge at the time of the collapse. A large crack showed on the end of the bridge where the segmented bus landed 150 feet down in the ravine as if it was hit by an earthquake. A car landed upside down in front of the bus. Uh, as noted, incredibly, uh, there were only minor injuries for the most part. Uh, at the site of the collapse, Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor and Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, called it an awful, surreal scene, adding, I hope it's a wake-up call to the nation that we need to make these infrastructure investments. This steel bridge was built in 1970, so more than 50 years ago. It carries about almost 15,000 vehicles a day, according to an estimate back in 2005. A September 2019 inspection of the city-owned bridge revealed the deck and superstructure to be in poor condition. According to the U.S. Department of Transportation, uh, a spreadsheet on the State Department of Transportation website listed the bridge's overall condition as poor. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> uh, according to the um, Pennsylvania DOT, which means, quote, deterioration of primary structural elements has advanced. So, yeah, the infrastructure money, which it should be noted, Democrats have been trying to get passed in Congress for years. That's coming not a moment to, too soon to places like Pittsburgh and hundreds of other cities around the uh, around the nation. And yes, ironically, this happened just before Biden's appearance in Pittsburgh to discuss that infrastructure spending, which he passed earlier this year. If I didn't know better, I would say the White House staged the whole thing just <laughs> to underscore. Yeah, no. Are you sure they didn't, Desi? I am positive. I think it's hilarious, though, and ironic that the universe sometimes presents these examples of, yes, you need to invest in your infrastructure, and you haven't been doing that, America. Yeah, because there are thousands of similarly crumbling bridges around the nation. Which engineers have been warning about for literally decades. But someone needs to find their way somehow into the fire. Fox News bubble, because uh, despite this one one trillion dollar bipartisan bill having been passed months ago, this is what Fox News viewers heard today, today, 
in the wake of this disaster, incredibly enough. I love fairy tales. I mean, but um, <laughs> normally I only enjoy them when it's during a bedtime story in the evening, not on a daily basis for the past year since the White House has been overrun by Democrats. But President Biden has been making promises over promises over promises. And as you've noticed, none of them have come true. Mm. And, and when a president makes promises and then doesn't deliver, and then something like this where a bus, I mean, there could have been multiple casualties. So thank God nobody was killed. But honestly, a bridge collapsing right before he's back in June of 2021, he started talking about his bipartisan infrastructure deal. There's nothing bipartisan about it. If it, if it was bipartisan, it would have been passed by now. So clearly um, he's not getting the message across to the other side of the aisle, which, by the um, way, if you remember, during his campaign, he said that he was going to be the president that was going to reach across the aisle, that he was actually going to make um, policy by reaching out to Republicans. That clearly has um, not happened. Um, that might have been the biggest fairy tale of them all. Oh. Okay, yeah, so that yeah. clearly has not happened, says Julie Banderas over on Fox News, where apparently they don't even know or they don't care to tell their viewers that, yes, by the way, Joe Biden's landmark $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill did, in fact, pass months ago. Now, Banderas, uh, Julie Banderas, the one you hear speaking there, she she's not a pundit. She's actually a Fox News anchor. <laughs> I know. I, you know, she's not an opinion person showing up. Uh, and, and by the way, I thought she was one of the better ones. Um, was being the operative word, maybe. Maybe. Uh, she was when I was on uh, Fox News one of these times years ago. She was actually... Very good on air. She said, uh, Brad, I know you were uncomfortable coming on today. Did you feel like you got to say what you needed to say? And yes, I did. But that clip on, on Twitter you know, had Banderas and four other people in boxes on the screen. All nodding along with her. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if someone went on to say, uh, yeah, actually, Julie, that bill did pass. But, uh, you know, uh, would you be surprised if no one did? At the very end there, that was Kylie, Kaylee Mac McEnany. Kaylee McEnany, the former uh, uh, White House press secretary under Donald Trump, playing along with this fake news that this bill never passed. Yeah, and Banderas later on on Twitter said, I, ju I misspoke, but, you know, it's still bad. And, uh, of course, a bill that passed two months ago is no way that it's going to get to bridge repairs in two months, number one. And number two, she just flat out lied that there was no Republican support for that bill. Republican senators voted for it. Uh, but, but you know what? As, as we constantly point out, we expect that kind of failure and blatant misinformation and propaganda from Fox News. It's no less damaging because they are the most watched channel in cable news. But hopefully some at least know that they're being lied to and misled when they watch Fox. Maybe. I don't know. Then there's the real not fake non-wingnut corporate media, when they fail, the damage, I would argue, is much worse because it's not just folks on the right who are already inclined to be anti-small-D Democratic as well as anti-capital-D Democratic, but it's Democrats and it's independents, etc., who are being misinformed about what is going on in their government. Last night, I received the following alerts on my mobile phone. From CNN, quote, a federal judge invalidated the Biden administration's oil and gas leases for 80 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico, citing climate change. Well, I guess Joe Biden doesn't care about climate change. He's out there leasing 80 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico. Washington Post, minutes later, quote, federal judge throws out 
Biden administration's massive Gulf of Mexico oil and gas sale faulting its climate analysis. Well, Biden really screwed up that climate analysis, didn't they? <laughs> so none of, none of those alerts, which were sent to millions of mobile phone users who follow CNN and Washington Post, none of them made this part of the story clear. Those lease sales were carried out by the Biden administration because a federal judge had ordered them to do so after they had tried to not do so. Because Biden, unlike the previous administration, felt they needed to follow the law when a federal court judge tells them they have to, even if they do not agree with what that federal judge said. And even when they were taking action to challenge the court, as White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki made clear to reporters back in November of last year, when she was asked about the administration, uh, about, about you know the claim that the Biden administration wants to move on clean energy in one breath, but they were selling off massive pieces in the sensitive Gulf of Mexico to big oil interests in another. Here's what Jen Psaki said last November. In June, a federal district court in Louisiana stopped the president's leasing pause and ruled that the Interior Department is legally required to go through with the sale of the lease sale 257, which is what you're refer what Andrea is referring to in terms of uh, putting up a, a bunch of uh, lease sales, oil and gas lease sales. Uh, we believe the decision is wrong uh, and the Justice Department is appealing it. So it's in the courts. It's in a legal process. Uh, we're required to comply with the injunction. It's a legal case and legal process, but it's important for advocates and other people out there who are following this to understand that it's not aligned with our view, the president's policies, or the executive order that he signed. Go ahead. There's no more left, so you can't take any last-minute action to prevent this from going forward. I would point you to the Justice Department. They, of course, are appealing this, and I would point you to them for any legal action or what their options are. So Joe Biden had signed an executive order saying we're not going to do this uh, lease sale that had been set up by the previous administration. A federal judge orders he can't do that. A he... nationwide injunction, by the way. Right. Oh, yeah. So they had to do this. Right. They say they're cha the DOJ is challenging it, and yet they have to file the rule of law. We covered it. Back in November, I think, on, on the Green News Report. Yes, we did. Not that the rest of the media, the corporate media, apparently, worked very hard to make that clear because they were sending out those alerts, you know, saying stuff like Biden administration's massive lease stopped by a judge. And I've heard folks on the you know progressive left in recent months complaining, oh, Joe Biden is just like Donald Trump. He talks a big game and then he goes out and he sells off millions of acres in the Gulf of Mexico to big oil. But that is not actually what happened. And the corporate media does a horrible disservice to all of us and to the nation and to the planet and to the climate emergency that we're all now facing, which is no joke. When they push out these attention-grabbing, divisive headlines that misrepresent the actual facts months after they should already know better. And they do know better, because if you bothered to click through on the story, you would find out they do know better. They just didn't include it in their headlines. Or uh, in their first couple in of their paragraphs. Alerts you have when, to actually read it. Well, when they point out, you know, when they send out to all these phones, federal judge throws out Biden administration's massive Gulf of Mexico oil and gas lease sale, most people do not even click through to the story. So this is what they get, and then they share it on, on uh, media, and uh, this is how these myths are born. 
Well, uh, very quickly, because uh, I need to get to my guest here, but here's what the actual story said. A federal judge on Thursday invalidated the largest offshore oil and gas lease sale in the nation's history, ruling that the Biden administration violated federal law by relying on a seriously flawed analysis of the climate change impact of drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. The decision in the U.S. District Court uh, threw out 1.7 million acres of oil and gas leases that the Biden administration actually did not want to sell. You'd find that out if you read the story. Shortly after taking office, President Biden suspended new oil and gas drilling on lands and waters owned by the federal government. But after a Louisiana judge struck down the moratorium last summer, administration officials said they were forced, forced to go through with the sale in November. Well, perhaps maybe that should have been made clear in the news alerts that were sent out to millions. Washington Post, it goes on to say that the the judge had concluded that the Interior Department's the, the recent judge on Thursday had determined that the Interior Department's environmental study that was completed under the Trump administration was flawed, claiming that somehow if these lease sales didn't go through, the climate impacts would be worse if the acreage went unsold. So that's the purposefully faulty crap that the Trump administration had come up with to allow these sales to big oil. And the Biden administration was ordered by a federal judge that they had to follow those until a better federal judge said, no, this is a bunch of nonsense. But you have to click through the story to find out. You wouldn't know it from the alerts that were sent out by CNN, Washington Post, and all the rest. Yep. Anyway, climate activists said that they hope that the new environmental assessment will lead now to a different outcome. This new assessment has been ordered by the judge. And thank God for the climate activists and shame on the media for misinforming the public. And by the way, thank God for the election integrity activists, too, the real ones. It would be it would be very nice if more of the corporate media started listening to them rather than, as with global warming, waiting until it's too damned late to listen to them to avoid emergencies. We do listen to such advocates on this show, and one of them working in a bipartisan coalition, though not yet with Republicans, sadly, joins us next in the broadcast as we fight to inform the public accurately before disasters strike. You're welcome. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The Justice Department's Election Threats Task Force announced on Thursday that they have charged a second person in its investigation into violent threats against election workers. Well, that is nice. 
Though given the hundreds of threats that have been made against election workers over the past year since the 2020 election, it's hard to believe that the DOJ is only getting around to their second arrest more than a year later. The DOJ announced on Thursday that a 50-year-old Nevada man named Gergi Luke Junkaj, and I'm sorry if I'm muffling his name, but frankly, I don't care. He was arrested in Las Vegas on Wednesday and charged with four counts of making threatening phone calls. Prosecutors allege the man called the Nevada Secretary of State's office four times and threatened the worker who was identified in the indictment as S.M., On January 7 last year, a day after the Capitol insurrection and Congress's certification of Joe Biden's 2020 election victory. In the first call, the man allegedly told the worker, quote, I want to thank you for such a great job you all did on stealing the election. I hope you all go to jail for treason. I hope your children get molested. You are all going to effing die. Well, he sounds nice. About 12 minutes uh, after that, after SM hung up on him, the man allegedly called the office again and was transferred back to SM's desk, repeated the quote, you are all going to die, according to the indictment released by the DOJ on Thursday. Prosecutors said uh, SM phoned the police to report the call before the guy allegedly called the office two more times to tell the worker in what the prosecutor described as a raised voice that she and the other staff at the office were going to die. All four alleged calls took place in less than a half hour, according to prosecutors who are finally bringing charges against the man over a year later. After what sounded to me to be a pretty direct and serious and imminent threat of violence. Law enforcement traced the cell phone number uh, that the alleged threats came from back to the man who did not identify himself during the calls, according to the indictment. His arrest came less than a week after the election worker task force, which Attorney General Merrick Garland assembled seven months ago, made its first arrest, a Texas man who had allegedly posted an ad on Craigslist offering $10,000 to have three Georgia officials killed. Nevada and Georgia, both of which went to Joe Biden in the election, were targeted by our disgraced former president in his attempt to steal the 2020 election by, among other things, attempting to intimidate election officials into overturning certified results. He, of course, has yet to pay a price for doing so, even as hundreds of his followers have continued to threaten and harass election officials across the country. And it's not just his followers. Nevada Secretary of State Barbara Sagasky, who is a Republican, well, she was censured by the state GOP last year for not being willing to play along with Trump's lies about mass voter fraud in Nevada, even though Joe Biden won by thousands of votes there. In recent weeks and months, Reuters has been doing a fantastic job of highlighting hundreds of such threats to elections officials around the country, almost all of which, like this one, to Fulton County, Georgia election officials have not resulted, at least not yet, in arrests and indictments. Time's running out, Richard. We're coming after you and every mother that stole this election with our Second Amendment. Subpoenas be damned. You're going to be served lead, you 
fucking enemy communist you will be served lead. Yeah, he sounds nice, too. There are hundreds more calls like this, even in places uh, like the very Democratic state of Vermont, of all states, which went to Joe Biden by more than 35 points in 2020. I won't bother playing you that call or any of the others. You get the idea. Thankfully, most election officials are taking these threats in stride, but it is not only election officials being threatened, it's also some of the folks fighting for election integrity, but I guess not being perceived as Trumpy enough in doing so in the bargain. One of those longtime election integrity advocates recently threatened will join me to discuss that and much more momentarily. Because there's a lot to cover on this beat, with a lot of important work going on, even as many on the MAGA right are trying to appropriate the real election integrity movement that have, as you know, if you've listened to this program or read bradblog.com for any amount of time, that have been fighting for real oversight and real transparency and against vulnerable computerized voting systems for years, long before the MAGA mob decided to pretend that they had some interest in this issue because they hoped to steal an election or were lied to about it. Many of the same characters pretending to call for election integrity now or claiming to oppose electronic voting systems made by Dominion or other vendors are some of the same people who had defended those very same systems for years fighting against Election integrity advocates fighting against things like hand-marked or hand-counted paper ballots. All of this has made for some very confusing territory these days for real election integrity advocates. Those who fight for fair elections and democracy as opposed to for any one party. It's made it very difficult for Advocates like that to wade through all of this, particularly with many in the Democratic Party now, afraid to even discuss concerns about voting systems for fear that they will add fuel to the phony so-called stop-the-steal fire coming from the right. And yet, at least as far as I am concerned, where I can help it, where it is within my control, for example, here on this program, I am determined to not let the violent bullies or the wingnut conspiracy theorist cyber ninja yutzes out there and all of the other stop the steel loons on the right who actually have no interest in election integrity. I'm not going to let them uh, prevent real election integrity advocates from continuing their years of important, critical work in ferreting out dangerous flaws and vulnerabilities in our voting systems, even when and perhaps especially when it involves working with those who are not progressive Democrats, but still have a legitimate interest in an election system that the public can oversee, that we can all find a way to have confidence in, in hopes of saving our incredibly endangered American democracy right now. Since Donald Trump decided to pretend that his election was stolen from him with evidence-free claims of voter fraud and evidence-free claims of computerized vote system hacking, many on the non-wingnut side of the ledger have become terrified about discussing actual flaws and vulnerabilities in our voting systems. 
Even Oregon Senator Ron Wyden, who spent years a Democrat pushing legislation, calling for hand-marked paper ballots, mandatory post-election audits, banning modems from computerized voting systems, seems to have shied away, at least somewhat, at least for now, from his loud advocacy for all of that, perhaps out of concern of these matters being conflated with the phony cries of fraud from the MAGA mob. I am determined to not fall into that trap, and I suspect so is my guest, who has recently faced some of her own threats due to her work as an election integrity advocate, as she sees it. That, as she has been working in the critical and closely divided swing state of North Carolina for years now to fight for publicly overseeable voting systems, and has now joined forces with the state Libertarian Party in their effort to carry out a source code examination of the state's newly purchased, 100% unverifiable touchscreen ballot marking device systems made by ESNS, the nation's largest private election vendor, though one, oddly enough, that has escaped most of the ire from Team Trump when it comes to false or at least evidence-free claims of election rigging by vendors such as Dominion Voting Systems. Lynn Bernstein is an aerospace engineer who has worked for years integrating and testing complex systems on numerous satellites, which means she is still way underqualified to study our nation's even more complex computerized voting systems. And I am only partly kidding. She is trained as an international election observer and a supporter of what she describes as evidence-based elections as the founder of Transparent Elections NC, whose mission, according to their website, is to confirm that every eligible vote is counted as the voter intended by working with election officials to ensure that elections are secure, transparent, robustly audited and publicly verified. Lynn Bernstein, I have followed your important work for a long time uh, on Twitter and uh, elsewhere where we have chatted from time to time, but you've never been on the broadcast before. So welcome to it. Thanks for having me, Brad. The uh, the ostensible reason I wanted to bring you on today is to talk about what the North Carolina Libertarian Party, which I don't think you're a member of, uh, is trying to do there and how you are working to support that effort. But before we get there, there was another reason I wanted to bring you on, which you posted about on Twitter last month. And I'll just read part of your brief Twitter thread here. You wrote, quote, Today, my husband and I were physically targeted we believe for the election work i've been doing today it escalated to in-person intimidation anything happens to me or my family suspected north carolina people's info has already been given to many people including authorities but this has gone too far and then you suggested might have something to do with this source code review uh with the libertarian party but that it's, quote, definitely related to election transparency work that I'm doing. Uh, first, I, I understand if you don't want to say too much here, but I'm hoping that you and your family are, A, safe. As you note, that authorities have been notified. Have they taken ample action for your comfort? Because I'm very concerned, you know, that law enforcement is not doing nearly enough about all of these threats, you know, on the, on the federal level, much less uh, against, you know, election officials, much less advocates like yourself. Are you safe at this time, do you feel? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> you know, we've, we've put some, some, some things in place that, uh, to create a safe environment for our family. Mm -hmm. You're right that um, 
elections officials have been in the news a lot about being harassed mm-hmm. and threatened. It seems, though, that the intimidation of election advocacy leaders, mm-hmm. it, it happens actually way more than the public is aware of. You know, privately, I work with people all across the country, and privately we discuss, we discuss it among ourselves, but most won't publicly disclose that they've been hacked or intimidated um, before. Um, some actually even just resign themselves to the fact that people are going to monitor what they're working on, and, and that's just how things are. But I think the thing that differs the most between, um, you know, election advocacy leaders, the threats that they're facing versus election officials that are getting letters and phone calls that can be traced is that election advocacy leaders, they, they sometimes get pushed back publicly from powerful people mm-hmm. in a way that is meant to intimidate, like um, having the police called on them or having bogus complaints filed against them. Mm-hmm. Um, but right, what we're seeing, and not just myself, but other advocates, is that in addition to that, um, we're being hacked and tracked by people who, for one reason or another, don't want transparency or verifiable election processes mm. or hand-marked paper ballots. Um, you know, hand-marked paper ballots don't benefit vendors who want to sell machines, and, and vendors aren't jazzed about anyone looking at their source code. And I, and I don't want, uh, you know, again, don't, don't offer any details you're not comfortable offering, but uh, how do you know that uh, this actually has to do with your uh, election work? Yeah, this is something that... Um, that I've discussed a lot with my husband and with um, some consultants. Um, the, the timing of the intimidation incidents, this isn't, by the way, the first one that has happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they seem to coincide with times where I've been very vocal and successful in creating more transparency and pushing for compliance with the law mm. and ensuring pub- publicly verifiable processes and, and obviously most recently helping to set the source code review in motion. And so the timing of that over the, the course of the past two years has um, it's been pretty spot on. <laughs> and, and I assume that it was uh, spot on enough and direct enough that you felt going public with it, as you did on Twitter in a, in a thread that I'll, I'll link folks to. Is that why you decide, Why did you decide to go uh, public with this finally uh, at, at the end of last month? So, so in the past... Um, I've been hacked and followed before, as as many election advocacy leaders and and advocates have. This particular incident in December, and I, I can give some details on that. Um, the day after Christmas, my my husband and I were out for a walk, and we were aggressively pursued by three vehicles, and we ended up getting a police escort home. And then that night, in the middle of the night, someone tried to log into our home security system. So we, we ended up getting a two-part authentication code in the middle of the night. And when my husband called the company, they said, yes, somebody did successfully enter our password. Into, and, your home, so, into your home security system. Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, this goes beyond intimidation. It becomes very serious when you, you have to wonder, why does somebody need to get into our home security system? Yeah. You know, I this would, isn't just a threat. I would say so. It really escalated to a point that uh, I felt my life was in danger and my husband as well. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so that's why I went public because, you know, I don't work, my organization is an organization made up of, of volunteers throughout North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I'm not some big organization who has a lot of, uh, a lot of backing behind me. Mm-hmm. And so, um, 
I had been advised that the best the best course of action would be to announce publicly that you are being harassed, and that because of the timing of all this, that it, it seems to coincide with yeah. uh, with projects that have you know been made public. You know, like the source code review. I think the press release came out for that, and then within five days, this re- most recent incident happened. Well, uh, let's talk about that because I know that uh, in the uh, before the 2020 election, I guess in uh, in 2019, there was quite a bit of controversy, quite a bit of activism as uh, the state of North Carolina, a critical battleground state, certainly in presidential elections that has gone uh, back and forth between Democrats and Republicans in recent years, almost always very uh, closely one way or another. There was a lot of uh, controversy over new voting systems that the state was looking to move towards. And there was a lot of us out there that were saying, hey, North Carolina, you know, please move to verifiable hand-marked paper ballot systems, not to these unverifiable touchscreen computer ballot marking devices. And sure enough, North Carolina did end up approving some of those ballot marking devices. I don't think they are used across the entire state, but they are used in some key counties, as I understand it. And that's, you know, I wanted to have you on the show not only after standing up to those threats, but uh, the potential tie-in, you note, to this source code review that the Libertarian Party in North Carolina is 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 promising to do on the new ESNS computerized touchscreen systems there. Before discussing that specific source code review, what are your concerns about the new voting systems that are now being used across much of the critical state of North Carolina? Yeah, so um, I, I was heavily involved in that fight against the certification of this barcode barcode ballot machine. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a I'm a big proponent of handmarked paper ballots. I think that's just the best record of voter intent. Um, it's very direct, mm-hmm. a very direct record. Um, North Carolina law says that a voter must be able to verify their ballot before casting it, and with that barcode. ESNS's barcode system, it doesn't actually allow the voter to verify their vote before casting it. And then the other issue that, that I have is that some counties, some larger counties like Mecklenburg County, they mm-hmm. decided to purchase these machines, these ballot marking machines for the entire county, which means if you vote in person in Mecklenburg County, they will not let you vote on a handmarked paper ballot. Mm-hmm. You have to vote on those machines. Mm-hmm. And even though North Carolina has the requirement that they have to print enough ballots for all <laughs> all uh, registered voters and they have those ballots at the precinct, um, still they are sort of forcing people to vote on these. They won't let you. So they have the ballots that people could use to use a handmarked paper ballot at the precinct, and yet they still don't let people use So those ballots are only there, I guess, in the event that the computers break down, at least people can keep voting at that point? That's correct. <laughs> Unbelievable. 
just unbelievable. And the barcodes you talk about for people who don't know, regular listeners understand, but these systems, just like the new ones we're forced to use at the polls here in uh, in Los Angeles now, they print out a paper ballot based on your selections on, on the touchscreen. You can try to review the uh, English uh, language or the readable text for how you voted. You can try to verify that, but that is not even tallied. In fact, these systems end up using the barcode, the QR code that nobody can read uh, other than a computer. So, yeah, you can't verify the system uh, or just can't verify your vote. Uh, now, late last year, the uh, North Carolina Libertarians announced in a press release that, in truth, I found to be a bit misleading, Lynn. I'll just read a, a quick part of it here. Headline. Uh, Libertarian Party of North Carolina to conduct independent election system source code review. Well, that's good. They write the Libertarian Party will conduct the first ever independent review of the state's election system software. Party chair, state chair Joseph Garcia invoked his authority under state law in a December 21 letter to the state board of elections requesting to review and examine all source code for an electronic voting system made by vendor ESNS which is used in 93 North Carolina counties. Garcia emphasized this is not about litigating the 2020 election. It's about election system security. Cybersecurity experts, he said, worldwide have warned of the vulnerabilities and inconsistencies of electronic voting machines. Voter confidence in those systems has been steadily eroding. He correctly notes these systems must be evaluated independently and tested regularly, he said. Garcia appointed Dr. Duncan Buell, who is a uh, recently retired University of South Carolina Department of Computer Science and Engineering uh, professor to lead this uh, code review team. Dr. Buell is also a former election official himself in South Carolina, and I will note a guest on this program in the past. I think he's fantastic. Lynn, when I first read this press release, I was under the impression that the Libertarian Party had actually been granted the authority to review the source code. But if I understand it, they're actually invoking what they see as their right under state law to review the source code uh, as a political party, I guess. But that approval has not yet been granted by either the state or ESNS in this case. Is that correct? Well, not exactly. <laughs> okay. So I'll give you a brief background. Um, uh -huh. the, the source code review uh, requirement comes from the Confidence in Election Act of 2005, which was set in motion after one of the counties in 2004 uh, lost, irretrievably lost, uh, about 4,500 votes. And so what ended up happening, that there was a bipartisan bill that passed unanimously in both the House and Senate, mm -hmm. essentially giving him the authority to do that. So he fully intends to ensure that the source code review gets done, and in requesting, you know, and initiating that request was the first step in this. But he's already been granted authority to do this, not only by our legislators who've, you know, put this into law, but our vendors actually have to agree to these um, things that are in our law mm -hmm. that that says if somebody does want, if, you know, one of the party chairs, mm -hmm. recognized party chairs, wants to have somebody like Duncan Buell do a source code review, they have to allow it. So in ESNS agreeing to sell their systems here, they're also agreeing to be subjected to this source code review should somebody 
with that authority to do so uh-huh. should they ask to do that. So he has done that. He has invoked his authority. This was in uh, mid-late December. What have you heard back from the state or the voting machine company since then? Um, I, he did hear back from the state that they were currently working on a response, essentially. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, we, 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 we sort of knew going into this that there would be pushback from the vendors. They mm-hmm. don't usually want to show their source code. Uh, in fact, ESNS, uh, I believe there was a requirement in California to show the source code, and they decided to just not sell machines at all rather than show the source code. But mm-hmm. when you do business in North Carolina, you have to agree to show the source code that that is in escrow. Okay. So where is it? <laughs> what's, the, <laughs> what's the holdup? Well, you know, that is a great question. Um, I don't know what the holdup is. The state board is required to allow this to happen. It's, an, it's part of the law. And uh-huh. so I imagine that in the next week or two that the Libertarian Party will take some sort of action to um, compel them to follow the law. Now, I, I hope so, because uh, now the press release, Lynn Bernstein, mentions that this is, quote, not about litigating the 2020 election, that the party simply wants to exercise their right, which, you know, they cite as state law to carry out this independent security review and source code examination. And I know and I don't think you are yourself a libertarian. You're welcome to clarify or not, as you see fit. Uh, But do you have confidence that this is really what the libertarians uh, efforts are really about? uh, Determining the security of these systems, looking for vulnerabilities, et cetera, so that they can be plugged rather than relitigating 2020, as we're seeing in so many other states. Right. That's a great question. And that's a question that I I had when I approached the Libertarian Party about this. Mm-hmm. So I've been working with I, I, my, I, myself. I'm a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm part of the Democratic Party. I'm uh, chair, I'm uh, on 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 a lot. I, I'm very involved in our local mm-hmm. Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And so I also, though, I work with Republicans who are forward looking, mm-hmm. who want to ensure that our upcoming elections are secure and transparent, mm-hmm. um, publicly verifiable you know, all that. So I, I really only look, I really only work with forward-looking people. And mm-hmm. so I knew that the Libertarian Party had this authority, um, and also the Republican Party and the Democratic Party has this authority, and neither of them wanted to to, to, to do this, mm-hmm. source code review. And so I met with the Libertarian Party chair and talked to him a great deal about his thoughts about the 2020 election, election security in general, and after I was, after I was really certain that this was the right person for the job, uh-huh. I, I let him know that hey, by the way, uh, you should check the logger because you have the authority to do the source code review. Ah. Well, one of the reasons why he's the perfect person to to do this is because he already knew what a source code review was. Mm. He. He is a former police officer. He has done forensic examinations before. Mm-hmm. He right now do, uh, works on high-dollar fraud crimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and when stopping, I said, okay, stopping so them, start, stopping them, I presume. Okay. Yes. 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 No, right. he, yes. He investigates yes. Um, high dollar, high dollar wire fraud and right. things like that crime. Um, and so, so he, he had already done all that, and when I said, well, so you understand what a source code review is, and he said, of course, we do them 
all the time. I mean, there's a constant source code review going on with the systems that they use to mm -hmm. prevent fraud. And when I let him know that this particular ESNS system has never undergone a truly independent source code review, a full comprehensive one, yeah. he, he was shocked, um, uh -huh. <laughs> as I think most of us are when we, when we learned of these things, um, and immediately was gung-ho about getting this done because he understands the importance of it. He understands Good. that... That he and, and one of the things that we both talked about a lot was that we do actually think that if we can get the source code review to go through, that even if issues are found, those issues can be corrected, right? And that will increase confidence. And so the whole point of the Libertarian Party wanting to do this and and me sort of, you know, helping helping them mm -hmm. get there is really to improve voter confidence. Yeah, and that's, you know, and it's important, and I'm, I'm really happy that you reached out to, to all of these other parties. You know, I'm, I'm uh, somewhat embarrassed for some of the other ones that they didn't uh, take up this opportunity to do the same thing. I'm glad the Libertarians are doing it. If you have confidence in them, then I do as well. I know that I have nothing but confidence in the great uh, Duncan Buell, if he's going to be overseeing this thing, uh, to be frank. I, I, I got to get out here uh, very quickly, Lynn, but uh, has the state itself, the North Carolina State Elections Board, have they carried out their own such review? Since I know that there were, you know, tons of uh, election integrity, cybersecurity folks who begged the, the state not to move to these particular systems. Did they do their own their own source code review and security review of these systems before approving them for the state? So this particular system, it was, it was done by administrative approval under the guise of this system only having de minimis changes from the previous system that was only partially tested. Oh. So, so these test labs, they don't, they aren't, the EEC doesn't require them to review the entire source code. It's mm -hmm. just a small portion of the source code that they review. And the state, even though it says in the law that they shall do all of the following, including a full source code review, apparently they have not done that. <laughs> and this particular system is two generations removed from the system that actually went under, underwent our certification process in North Carolina. So they can come in and make these small uh, so-called de minimis changes and they don't have to go through a full source code review. And anyone who is in any way uh, familiar with computer programming knows how much damage you can do either purposely or accidentally when you make the smallest of so-called de minimis changes to source code. And we have learned, we, we cover very closely on this show, a similar exam of the Dominion voting systems that are were recently put into use in Georgia and the very serious vulnerabilities that have been found there in those systems. There's a huge court case about it. I know you've been following that closely with uh, yeah. Plaintiff Marilyn Marks and the Coalition for Good Governance. Right. They found problems there. As soon as people look at these systems, they find problems. So I will yeah, look... So I, I, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Can I, I just want to clarify that the de minimis changes that are allowed in North Carolina are, mm -hmm. are not de minimis changes to the source code. The de minimis changes are you know, like making an electrical cord for the voting machine mm -hmm. a little longer okay. or changing a button to, to make it easier for uh, people with disabilities to vote. Uh -huh. Those would be de minimis changes. Uh -huh. Hardware changes, software changes, firmware changes, those things 
are not considered de minimis. And so even though there are those changes from the system that got approved, it was approved anyway. And um, mm. many of us wrote to the state and let them know that these were not de minimis changes and that this the system should undergo the full yep you know, go, go through its paces. So I just want to clarify that it wasn't that the source code de minimis changed. It's a, gotcha. more of a, yeah. Yeah, no, I, well, this is why it is critical that there are folks like you, Lynn Bernstein, uh, overseeing what's going on, why I think it's important for us to get out the word of what people like you are doing, because the systems in North Carolina, just as the systems in Georgia, are not only used in North Carolina. They are used all over the country, I think the uh, the, the systems uh, that are in use in Georgia now, where there have been serious vulnerability found vulnerabilities found, uh, are used in like 16 different states. So the work that local folks like yourself do is really important to the rest of the country. So thank you on that. Please stay in touch as as uh, the 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 source code review moves forward, as I hope it will. I look forward to talking about it more in the future. And Lynn, thank you for the work that you're doing. I am really sorry for the intimidation and the threats that you have faced in doing it. But please know there is a grateful nation out here uh, who is very appreciative of your work. And I'm appreciative that you uh, were willing to join us today on the broadcast. Thank you so much. Lynn Bernstein's work can be found at transparentelectionsnc.org. You can also uh, find her on uh, on Facebook. Their name is NC Handmarked. And uh, you can also find her on the Twitters. Uh, she's a good Twitter follow at Bernstein underscore Lynn. Lynn Bernstein, thank you again. All right. Thanks, Brad. Okay, got to take a quick break. And uh, boy, can you imagine they got into her security? <laughs> yeah, scary stuff. Home security system. But anyway, she's going to keep fighting. God love her. Uh, all right, quick break. We're running late. More Bradcast. Very little more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Keep praying. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. The bipartisan U.S. House Select Committee investigating the U.S. Capitol insurrection subpoenaed more than a dozen individuals on Friday who it says falsely tried to declare Donald Trump the winner of the 2020 election in seven swing states. Yes, they committed massive election fraud in the bargain. The House panel is demanding information and testimony from 14 people who it says allegedly met and submitted fraudulent electoral college certificates declaring Trump the winner of Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, New Mexico, Nevada, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, according to a letter from the uh, committee chair, Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi. 
President Joe Biden, of course, won all seven of those states. But these Republicans gathered at their respective state capitals to claim that they were the true and duly sworn in electors chosen by their state's voters. I don't think they they thought that went through. No, well, they didn't. Uh, It was, of course, a lie. They were committing election fraud, arguably even voter fraud, depending on how you want to look at it, to try and steal the 2020 election at the direction of someone in the Trump campaign. Benny Thompson says in his letter to these uh, individuals subpoenaing them, Quote, we believe the individuals we have subpoenaed today have information about how these so-called alternate electors met and who was behind the scheme. The individuals, according to the investigation, submitted fake slates of electoral college votes for Trump, then sent those certificates to Congress and the National Archives, where uh, several of Trump's advisors in Congress used that to try to justify delaying or blocking the certification of the election during the joint session of Congress on January 6th. Massive, the ultimate election fraud, voter fraud move yeah. to try to steal a presidential election. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco said in a CNN interview several days ago that the Department of Justice has received referrals from lawmakers regarding the fake certifications and the prosecutors are now, quote, looking at those. Well, thanks, Lisa. We've only known about them for more than a year at this point, and you're only now just looking at them? I guess I should be happy that you finally are. I guess. Anyway, gotta go. Boy, those 14 people are going to have a hard time avoiding those. All of them avoiding uh, those subpoenas. Good luck. Good, but good for the House Committee making it happen. Yep. The story will continue in the days ahead on the broadcast, no doubt. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, and my guest today, Lynn Bernstein of TransparentElectionsNC.org, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download them all for free at bradblog.com, all of which is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on the airwaves and, yes, to help celebrate our 18th anniversary at bradblog.com, which we are just wrapping up this week. Thanks to those who have stopped by so far to drop us a little congratulatory gift. It is greatly appreciated, very much needed. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. So we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>